Welcome. This is my truth as a platform for honest, open conversations. The stories I share or that others share are often not spoken about or discussed, but once told, I believe they have the ability to shine a light on another perspective or a much needed conversation. These stories may make us laugh, some may make us cry, but together we will learn from one another and begin to heal. Because walls need to be torn down, masks need to come off, stories need to be heard in order for our truths to be told. This is my truth. Will you tell me yours? Hello, hello, podcast world. Welcome back to This Is My Truth. I am your host, Jesse Sherleff, and I am so honored and excited to share this conversation that I have with my friend, Eve McDavid. Eve and I have known each other for, gosh, it feels like forever, at least 10 years. I don't even want to go back and count how many years it's really been. Um, We were colleagues who then became friends, and she was just one of those people, whenever I ran into her in the New York office, it just always brought a smile to my face. And so I'm just honored to have had this conversation with her because recently I found out the journey that she had been on and she'll share her story in our conversation. And I had no idea. And it struck me that that's so true for so many of us, right? We go through these things and we are in our own bubble dealing with it and and have our support system. And when we're ready and able to share, we do. And it's in those moments, right? It's in those moments of true connection that we hear me too. And I titled this episode, I Am Here, because Eve talks about that in in her in her journey in her her I, I guess I want to call it battle her battle with with cervical cancer and but the reality is is we are here we are all here and we are given one life and if there's anything the last 18 plus months of this pandemic have taught so many of us is that we have one life and you know do we really want to allow these handcuffs these societal these cultural these money all of these handcuffs that you know feel real and in some cases are real um systemically to to allow us not to live our one life how we want to. So we are here. I am here. You are here. And we are all leaders. And one of the themes throughout the conversation that Eve and I have is this notion of we we are leaders and we are all leaders of our own life. And how we navigate that is ultimately up to us. And for her and her journey, we talk a lot about the shame that she felt after getting diagnosed with cervical cancer. And because it's, quote unquote, a preventable disease, a preventable cancer. And how it got me thinking, right, about shame and about how we don't talk about things in which we feel shame. For me, that was, um, you know, feeling less of a woman because I couldn't have children, quote unquote, the traditional way. That was me for, you know, feeling like even though I had everything on, you know, that I was supposed to have, right? The family, the nice house, the nice job, I wasn't happy. And then there's shame around motherhood, right? And so I'm actually going to dive into this more in next week's episode. But what I am so grateful for in this conversation with Eve is she talks about how she overcame that for herself. And that I think is the key because while for so many of us, we feel this, this shame, 
this guilt and to be very clear, there is a difference between guilt and shame, right? Brene Brown talks about this. Guilt is I feel um, like a bad person or I feel like a bad mom because I made this decision. Shame is you're internalizing I am a bad mom. So for me, the shame around fertility was I'm not a woman. I I am a – what am I doing here, right? That I'm less of a woman. I'm less of a person. It's that it's that internalization of of that feeling. That's shame, and it gets bigger if we don't talk about it. But the problem is, is so many of us don't talk about it, right? Because it's triggering and so often stigmatized. And so I'm so grateful for E for sharing her own journey and her own overcoming of that, because I think there's so many lessons learned that each of us can take away from it. So I could go on and on and on about this conversation. And I probably would if you guys let me, but I will spare you. So a little bit more about Eve. A femtech entrepreneur, Eve McDavid, is a Google strategy executive and stage 2B cervical cancer survivor. She began her career in media and technology 15 years ago at the beginning of the modern digital marketing era. In January 2020, Eve was diagnosed with cancer one month before her second baby was due. She underwent aggressive treatment in New York City during the rise of the COVID-19 pandemic. With her husband's unwavering devotion and commitment for an unflappable care team, Eve reached remission in 2021. Forever transformed by cervical cancer, Eve is a passionate advocate for women's healthcare access and, equ- and equity. As a woman in tech who specializes in complex problem solving, she's joined the World Health Organization's fight to eradicate cervical cancer by 2030. She's also collaborating with Wheel Cornell Medicine to redesign treatment devices to improve women's care, outcomes, and access. Eve's story has been featured on ABC7 in New York City, and she's a regular fixture in the media discussing various aspects of her health journey. She is currently finalizing a personal essay for the Washington Post. Eve lives with her husband and two children in New York. For information, please visit www evemcdavid.com. You can also connect with Eve on LinkedIn at Eve McDavid. She is just a gem of a human, one of my favorites, and I know you all will agree after hearing our conversation. As always, if there are parts of your the conversation that you know you think me too, let us know. Reach out. We love hearing those moments because that's what brings us closer. And to circle back to shame, right? That's what starts to slowly ebb our shame bubbles for all of us. So reach out, let us know. If you feel that someone in your circle, friend, family, loved one should hear this conversation, please pass it along. And as always, leave an honest rating and review. I really appreciate it. And with that, plug in your AirPods earphones, headphones, whatever you listen to, and enjoy my conversation with Eve. Eve, I am so excited to have this conversation with you and generally just to to catch up. And I always love seeing your face. So thank you so much for being here today. It is an honor and a pleasure to be here, Jess. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Of course. Um, I'd like to start our conversations by asking, what is the truth that you would like to share? Yes. So my truth is that I had a sex-related cancer. I had a high-risk strain of HPV that developed into a stage 2B cervical cancer diagnosis. And for those of your listeners who aren't familiar, HPV is shorthand for the human papillomavirus. I was diagnosed at a very young age. I was diagnosed last January when I was 33 years old. And in the eighth month of my pregnancy with my second baby, my son, Arthur. And all of this happened in New York City during the run-up of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so it has been quite a year and a half plus for myself and my family. But I'm here and proudly, proudly here and very excited for this conversation. You are here. I 
feel like I think that's going to be the title of this conversation. Um, I love that. And so, I mean, there's so much I want to unpack in, in what you just said. And so first, before we, we unpack, um, I want everyone to know what the end result was for you. So you are in remission. Yes, I am in remission. I reached remission earlier this year and I have recently cleared, very recently cleared my most recent checkpoints and all scans show normal activity and all evidence points to a very, very healthy future. So incredible news for me. And my son, Arthur is 20 months. He just started preschool last week. And so we have come a very, very, very long way uh, in sometimes it feels like no time at all and also feels like the only life I've ever known. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so grateful um, that that has been your, your prognosis so far. And so take me back to that moment where you learned that this was the journey that you're about to start? Yeah. So I was at a prenatal visit in the last few weeks of my pregnancy. And my care provider offers weekly checkups once you get far enough along in the pregnancy. And during those checkups, she does a gynecological exam to determine how ready you are or close you are to delivering. And part of that is checking your cervix to see how effaced it is, how thinned out it is, how dilated it is, dilated it is. And I had gone through this once before with my daughter. So I had a sort of expectation of how this would go. And in the case of my son, she described my cervix, my OB, described my cervix as feeling irregular. And I thought, well, gee, <laughs> that isn't one of the words that we use to talk about early labor. <laughs> and we very quickly determined that something was going on. Um, it wasn't clear right in that moment that it was cervical cancer, um, but it was enough to prompt her to perform a pap test in the office and to very quickly get me into the care of an oncologist. And from there, everything happened very quickly. It was a Monday when I was at that exam. And by Thursday of that week, I had delivered Arthur via an emergency C-section. My oncologist had been there in the delivery to perform a biopsy after Arthur was out safely. And then at that point, I could go under further scans. I had scans earlier in the week, but I could have further scans where Arthur wasn't inside and there wasn't a risk to Arthur. Uh, and because they're looking at the same area where Arthur also was, uh, they could actually see my anatomy properly. And so in about three days time, I had a stage 2B cervical cancer diagnosis. And uh, very rapidly after that, a plan for entering treatment, uh, which would consist of chemotherapy and radiation, both externally and internally. I have like full body goosebumps as you're explaining <laughs> that timeline. And what's coming up for me as, as a mom of two, right? Like you go into those appointments, you think that you know what's going to happen. You're, you're getting this information it's all happening in a whirlwind, I would imagine. And so now you're a mom of two kids of a newborn, you get this diagnosis and you're put on a plan, which is, you know, so wonderful that you had this amazing team of doctors and I'm imagining family and support. Right. But like, wow. Yeah. Yeah like first and foremost, like, wow. And like, I can only imagine what was going through your mind in all of that. Yeah, I was in shock for that period, absolutely. And when I think back on this last stretch of time, 
I was in shock for most of last year. And I think that, you know, many of us in different ways experienced uh, that feeling. Um, but this was very specific. Um, like you just mentioned, you know, when you're going through your pregnancy, you are making plans, so to speak. And we all know that, you know, the best played, laid plans, you know, and fill in the blank. Uh, and I had um, in between my pregnancies uh, with Arthur and Ruby Ann, I had experienced a miscarriage. And so I understood what it, you know, what it meant for the plans to go differently. And it was really the first time where I had opened myself up to grief and loss and sort of looked at myself in the mirror and said, this is a moment that I have to feel and I have to experience. Um, otherwise, you know, what is any of this for? You know, the loss was, the magnitude I felt was so enormous when I had the miscarriage. And so when this happened with Arthur, the shock was just very prolonged because the loss was very different. The loss was an understanding that I would be trading at the time what I understood to be my feminine future for my very survival. And Arthur, I mean, God bless Arthur is alive and healthy and I mean, at 35 weeks, he was ready to be born. I can't even believe it. I mean, he was just, he was such a champ. I mean, he slept for the first two months. I mean, he did not, he did not move. He was so perfect. He's the baby we needed in so many ways. Yeah. Um, but I felt the loss so very extremely that there was nothing to do but sort of like stare ahead and try to understand what was being told to me and what plans were being made for me that I would show up for. Uh, it was very, very difficult to find myself. It was very difficult to be a mother to Arthur. It was months before I felt like I was a mother to Arthur. And it was very difficult in the early days to understand all the trades that I felt I had to make for my survival. Um, what I didn't anticipate in that moment was how long lasting so much of that would be because you can only go through and experience so much at once and cancer changes you forever. And so, you know, I'm, I continue to live with new experiences of old changes that I'll carry with me. And I think that's part of the journey of making it through and being here to both tell my story and also reflect on everything that I got through just to be here right now. Oh my gosh, I wish I was in New York to give you a hug. Um, <laughs> you know, I've always Me loved too. you, but- um, I know, we'll do it in person this, next time. <laughs> yes, yes, this, this makes, you are just, I've always said this about you, but you are just such a, a, a strong person. And I don't mean that in like the traditional way that we use that in our culture of like, you're strong and you're not feeling and you're independent. Like you are all, you are strong and independent and have done so well for yourself. But just what you just said, right. Of like the first time you looked in the mirror and, and made that decision that you had to feel your grief. Like that took me years, years, right. Like my own, when I went through everything with Lucy and Clark, I, I couldn't yeah. do that then. And you know, I had a, a miscarriage after Quinn and like, I couldn't do that then. And, you know, to me, that is strong, right. That you are able to look in the mirror and, and feel those emotions. Like to me, that should be our society's definition of strength, like what you just said. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I can say also, and thank you. I believe I am strong. And, you know, today I say, yeah, absolutely. I'm strong <laughs> as hell, you know, yes, you are. Um, it took me, the miscarriage was the first time in my life that I'd let, ever let that in. There had been plenty of moments where I, ex I know, and looking back, I certainly know that I had gone through grief and trauma and pain and loss. And I had never let me, let, never let myself feel it. You know, I had this this 
endurance and shouldering through and showing up well and playing hurt. And, you know, I, I never gave myself the option. I never felt like I had the option. And with the miscarriage, I said, absolutely not. I said, you know, my world is standing still right now. And that's the only place that I can be. I felt it was the only thing to do and to make some semblance of what had just happened. I love that. So there's just, there's so much, there's so much I could, you know, talk to you about. Um, I, I think what's coming up for me or what is coming up for me is what you were saying in terms of the trades that you were making, I want to unpack that more because I, yeah, I think that unless you've gone through something like you've experienced, or, you know, I think about, frankly, like the trades that we made with, with my pregnancy with, with Lucy, right? Like there's, unless you're in that moment, like you don't understand necessarily what that means. And so I'm curious for you I would imagine, right, like you have all of this information coming at you. You have a plan that's handed to you. There, there's probably like there's just so much coming at you, right? And like, how do you actually sift through it? Like, make decisions. Like, what was that like? And what were some of those trades? Yeah, that is a great question. So, once we understood that this was cervical cancer. I'd asked my OB and I'd asked my oncologist what that picture meant. And because of my staging is 2B, so it's advanced enough that surgery, meaning a hysterectomy where the cervix and sometimes the uterus and sometimes the ovaries are removed was not an option, but it appeared that it hadn't yet spread, which was great news because it was very questionable, again, given with the pregnancy, everything was very difficult to read. And so it wasn't totally clear that it hadn't spread, but it appeared that it was locally advanced is the medical term for it. And so chemotherapy and radiation internally and externally are what comprise what's called standard of care treatment. When you have this diagnosis, this is the therapeutic process that is most likely to give a woman the best outcome. And now all cancer is horrific and impossible. And gynecological cancers are particularly vicious for many different reasons. For me, my experience was that in order to embark on treatment, I had to understand that many things would now be off the table. So the first, because I um, was pregnant and I was at risk, I could have bled out if I delivered vaginally. That meant that I had to have a C-section. And I had a C-section with my daughter, Ruby Ann, and that had been a very difficult experience for me to come through for many different reasons. And again, you know, with our plans, right? So I was planning to try for a vaginal delivery and I was really committed to that plan. <laughs> and then that plan is off the table, right? So um, that was done, but I said, okay, well, I've had this surgery before. I understand it's major surgery. I'm gonna have this major surgery. The next thing that came up was that I couldn't breastfeed Arthur because my body had to prioritize healing from the C-section and getting ready for chemotherapy. Once you start chemotherapy, your body stops the process of healing because there's so much toxic activity that is preventing your body from doing anything other than focusing on the cancer. And so breastfeeding that had been a really restorative journey for me with my daughter, Ruby Ann, was now something I couldn't share with Arthur. And I believe that those two features in combination with the shock of everything really gutted me and gutting my, gutted my feelings of motherhood. You know, who, who was I to my baby if these features of what I felt were so important to our bond were just gone? 
the next thing that I had to become comfortable with was that my ovaries should be treated as part of the treatment because if the cancer had spread, which again, there wasn't a clear indication whether it had, if it had spread and it was present microscopically in my ovaries and it wasn't yet being picked up, if there was recurrence in my ovaries, my chances of survival would be much smaller. And for those of your audience and for you, you know, you, you may know how um, high the mortality rates are for ovarian cancer. And so I was making a choice among two very bad options. Um, The next understanding that I had was that in a woman who wouldn't have been pregnant and then postpartum, there may be time to go through the process of harvesting follicles to see whether I could produce eggs such that if we wanted to have more children, uh, that may have been an option. Um, But because the cancer had grown so tremendously quickly, uh, there was no time for me to get back to pre-pregnancy hormonal levels to then alter them to go through the process. Um, And so any viable eggs that I had gone into this with, you know, um, those are no longer part of me. And then the last was very complex, which would be that following treatment, immediately following treatment, I would be in menopause. So because my ovaries were treated with chemotherapy, that effectively um, creates the phenomenon of menopause. And I was still pregnant when I was hearing all of this information. And so it's very difficult when you're pregnant to even grasp what menopause may mean because you know you may be, depending on where you are when you're pregnant, how old you are, you may be a very long time away from menopause. And all of a sudden that was on my doorstep. And I remember a conversation that I had with one of my providers and she said, you know, we want to be very careful about, you know, um, your mental health because, you know, you're going to be going through a lot. And so we really need to be clear on, you know, where your baseline is and, you know, how you're going to experience this. We don't want you at any greater risk for postpartum depression. And I looked at her and I said, how can you tell? I said, what's left of me that, you know, you know, I'll give everything I can to live, but I don't even know what that means, you know? And so I said this line about, you know, trying to prioritize which was most difficult for me, which loss was most difficult, but there, there was no leaderboard, you know, there, it was just every loss was such it was of such enormous magnitude and, you know, we made a decision that night. It was the Tuesday after all of this had started, we made a decision that night and we just said, okay, the goal is my survival. And so everything is on the table, Wow. you know? Yeah. Goosebumps again. (laughs) Um, You know, what's coming up for me is as you're talking about, the loss and and I think about my own journey with infertility and um that you know I I'm not a particularly religious person but I would be lying if I didn't there were not parts of me as I was going through my own journey that was like this is my job as a woman yeah and it's being stripped from me And I'm curious, like just on a personal level, like as, as you're hearing all this, right. And you're making decisions and, and obviously that, you know, it's your survival versus like decisions. And so like, that's, there's so much there, but I'm curious, like, did that ever cross your mind? Like, of like, you know, like you said, like you're stripping me of womanhood. Like I felt, I felt that in in my own journey. So yeah, of course I'm. I can only imagine what that's been like for you. Yeah, it it forced me to face 
so much about myself, but I think most specifically who I was in the absence of all of these features, I believed made me me. You know, I had thought, well, I'm in my early thirties, we may have more children. You know, I had hoped that I would have choice in what the design of my family could look like. Uh, and I'm like, I'm smiling as I say these things because, you know, I think these moments help us understand how little control we actually have. Um, but, you know, you mentioned faith. I, for, you know, my entire life, I've been such a deeply Jewish person and you're in these moments and you're just in like a vortex and you have very little line of sight, you know, that you can't see anything peripherally. You can see maybe six inches ahead of you. And it's very difficult to grapple with what all of this means. And, you know, struggles with infertility, grief, loss, cancer diagnoses, these force us to face the end of life or the end of a life. Mm -hmm. And we are very uncomfortable doing that. That is not something that you know humans are necessarily wired to do. But I think the people who have gone through things like this, who have you know, understood that these are pivot points or points of inflection, they're the end of some things, but the beginning of others, they help with that type of wisdom in these really, really impossible moments because when you're in it, it's impossible to see your way out of it. And so you have to rely on a lot all around you, whether it's people, whether it's faith, whether it's resources, whether it's therapy, anything you need. I call it you know, having my hands on the railings uh, it took me a long time to find railings again, but I eventually found some ones that aren't so rickety. <laughs> well, or even all of those things you called out, right? Like therapy and family yeah. and faith, right? Like it, it, whatever that looks like to you, um, though I can, I can resonate with, with it taking a while to, to, to find that sometimes. Um, I'm, I'm curious you know, what, as you've gone through this journey and as you've sh shared your experience with others, you know, what, what have people's reactions been? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, I want to say one more thing, because I think this will sort of help the framing of how I answer that question. Uh, because the, the response, I mean, the short answer is the response has just been extraordinary. And what I'm seeing is how necessary it is for me to share a story like this and to make this experience accessible to other women because cervical cancer doesn't occur all the time, right? It is, it is relatively rare, and we can talk a little bit more about that, but the virus that causes it, HPV, is incredibly common. Most sexually active adults will contract it at some point in their lifetime, and we don't have a choice as to what strain we contract. And if you contract a high risk strain, you can be at risk for developing cervical and other cancers. And so it's, it's incredibly important that I use this as a message to say, you know, we can prevent this, we can change the course for so many women because we don't have to be ashamed of HPV and let that shame have a cascading effect on our care how we show up for ourselves, how we show up to our providers, and how we access prevention and treatment options as needed. Um, I will say that in the midst of this vortex, where I'm grappling with all of these decisions about, not really decisions, the choices were made for me. And I said, okay, I wanna live, so let's give it a shot, you know? Um, but I had this like, blaring megaphone in the back of my mind of shame and self-doubt and humiliation because I thought, well, cervical cancer, that's preventable. So why wasn't I able to prevent it? 
I went to every screening. I never missed an annual exam. I had pap tests on time. I had the HPV test. If people hear that I have a preventable cancer, they're going to think that I was reckless, that I was clumsy, that I didn't do what I should have done, should have done, right, to prevent this eventuality. And then the other piece that's so complex about cervical cancer is that it's caused by HPV. And so you as a woman have to be comfortable telling people that you have a cancer caused by a sexually transmitted virus, albeit one that is as common as the common cold and in many cases, completely innocuous. But because we as a society are not yet comfortable talking about women's health, gynecological health, our bodies, the names of our body parts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's no surprise that I walked into this experience blaming myself for a preventable disease and feeling humiliation about my diagnosis. And so as I'm making all of these enormous decisions about what my life and my person and my being will look like if I survive, I'm also hugely embarrassed by this diagnosis. And I look back to some of the early emails that I sent to people in my life I was close to, you know, um, people in my family, people, friends of mine, um, really like trusted leaders at work. I don't even say I had cervical cancer. I just say I have cancer. And it took me a long time to even be able to say cervical and not shudder. And at first I thought, well, you know, why am I not strong enough? You know, I thought, you know, if I, you know, why can't I document this? Why can't I speak about this? Why can't I, you know, be the type of person who would do this in real time? And that took a really long time for me to get comfortable with it. And part of that comfort was searching out other women's stories. And in every other woman's story, I hear her talking about the shame, the shame because of HPV, and then the shame because of what happens to our bodies and our feminine identities if we're lucky enough to survive. And I looked at that and I was like, this is absurd. This is cancer. There is nothing to be ashamed about. And we're putting the weight of the world on our shoulders. We're putting other people's expectations and feelings and shoulds about how women go through this world while we're fighting for our lives. That is a bar that is far too high. That's an impossible bar. You never meet that mark. And so telling my story has said, we got to bring that down. <laughs> like we have got to make this easier for women to talk about. If I can make this easier for a single woman, help her get into care, help her get back on her prevention plan, help her have a more confident conversation with her doctor, prevent a cervical cancer diagnosis. All of it is worth it. I think what you're calling out, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And God, there's so much shame in being a woman. <laughs> yes. It's endless. Right. It's just like, this is, it's just another data point, right. Around like the baggage of shame that we as women carry consciously or unconsciously because of our Absolutely. society. Um, which that could be a whole nother podcast conversation. I know we'll do that uh, one again. Yeah. <laughs> Times two. Um, but I, I think, I think that's so important, right? I think this is where, you know, when we are able to, and, and also recognizing that in there's some cases, like we're just not, we're, we're not ready. We're not there where we can use our voice to, to share those moments. But when we are able to, and we have the ability to, and the, the privilege to, to, to be able to share our stories and use our voice to amplify the voice of others, it's so important because that shame doesn't go away. The shame goes away when we talk about it. Exactly. I think, I think Brene Brown did like a video once of like shame and it was like, you could like see it shrinking. I could be making this up. I yeah. Sunlight like, is yeah. the ultimate disinfectant, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And so, um, I'm just so grateful for, for you. And I, and I think I shared this with you when, when we reconnected, but you know, when I was in, I guess it was my freshman year of college, 
might've been my sophomore year, like going into my sophomore year, but I, I had an abnormal pap smear and I remember first of all, like not understanding like any of it. And because we, none of us are, that isn't in our education system to understand. You only understand the first time it happens. That experience is so common. Most women only learn about all of this at their first abnormal pap. And then um, I don't even know the right like vocabulary for it, but then I had to get, like I had the biopsy and then I had to do the, the freezing thing. Yes. And I remember like, well, one, I didn't really tell anybody, but two, like even I like went to all those appointments by myself. And I remember yeah. after the freezing thing, which I'm sure has an actual medical term to it that I'm- Yeah, the cryotherapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the you. leap. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I actually like had to pull over on the side of the road and like vomit. Like I was so, it affected me. And, but like, I didn't, again, like I didn't ask the questions. I didn't like, I just like showed up and I was like, I've got this. And, you know, even still, like, I remember a friend of mine, we were just having a conversation. She's like, Oh, I have to, I have to have this doctor's appointment. And like, somehow we, we both realized that like, I had gone through this, like she had just gone through it. And it was that like, oh, like it is more common. We just, we just don't talk about it. No, exactly. And I'm so glad that you shared that because this has been my experience. Almost every woman who has reached out to me as a result of the ABC piece or some of the work that I'm now doing to spread this message on LinkedIn has been Eve you're the only woman I've ever told about this, but I also had an abnormal pap. And similarly, I had X, Y, and Z follow-up procedure. And because we don't know anything about it until we have an abnormal pap. And then once we go through the treatment and we get to the next checkpoint that, you know, in many cases is a normal pap test, we sort of breathe the sigh of relief and we push it down and we compartmentalize it. And every time we show up for care, we do a little prayer to hope that it's normal again and it's never gonna be abnormal ever again. And that was the end of it. And so because we don't talk about it in the first place, and then once it happens, we don't wanna talk about it ever again, except in these hushed one-on-one conversations, we don't have any women leaders on major platforms talking about how common this is. Something like 5% of PAPs every year are abnormal. That's at least 3 million women. And they don't clear necessarily every single year, right? And so there's a large number of women walking around in our society who have had this exact same experience and you would never know it. We just do not talk about it. And so my hope, and and that was a lot of what I saw when I was diagnosed. I was like, I'm looking for hope. You know, and there are, I I should say too, there are so many brave women who have come before me and I am endlessly appreciative and grateful for everything that they've done because them sharing their stories has even made it possible for me to start to share mine. And so I'm certainly not the first woman to do this. And I, you know, I know that I am not the last. And my hope is that this helps bring sunlight to this dialogue that it is totally normal to have an abnormal pap test, right? Because most of us have HPV or have contracted it or will contract it. And an abnormal pap is basically the symptom of the virus, right? HPV testing lets you know what strain of HPV you have. And the pap test lets you know whether you've had any abnormal cellular changes in your cervix. So it's the virus and the symptom. And we are just beginning to be more comfortable talking about that. And again, my hope is conversations like these will make it easier for women to talk amongst themselves, for women to talk to their care providers, and to really get this type of dialogue going on, you know, on major platforms, so that we're all comfortable accessing information empowering ourselves through that education and then showing up for ourselves when it really, really matters in our physician's office. I love it. I love <laughs> it. Well, it's right. It's the epitome of, of finding your voice, you know, 
speaking your truth and 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 sharing it and I think that when we are able to do that it to your point opens doors for other for other women right it's that moment of like if you take off your mask even for a second and let someone else do that um and I think that's amazing yes thank you absolutely and I think about my daughter and she is five years away from having her first HPV vaccine. And I want her to know what that vaccine is for. I mean, you know, we're talking about vaccines a lot these days, right? Kids are going to grow up with a good understanding of modern medicine and what accepting and embracing modern medicine can mean for living long, healthy lives. And when she receives that HPV vaccine, she will be entering adolescence. She'll be on her way to becoming a teenager. And she's going to be in positions where she's making choices about herself and her body far before her brain really catches up with the logic of it all. And if I can change this experience for her, if I can lead with sex positivity, right? We're doing things in our household where she knows the names of her vagina. She knows where her vulva is, right? We use that nomenclature with my son. We talk about his penis. She understands there's a difference between boys and girls and she's comfortable talking about herself. And I want her to grow up with that spirit that this is a normal thing to talk about. Talking about yourself and your body and your body parts is a very normal experience of growing up as a woman. And I, I think it starts very, very early. And I'll say too, that, you know, I don't think that I would necessarily be so emphatic about embracing sex positivity as a mother, unless I had gone through this, because I understand the real collateral damage. I mean, it's literally life-threatening when we accept the status quo, which is, is if you're not sex positive, you're sex negative, right? That's all the messaging externally and internally that we experience. And so if I can change that for her and for her generation, preventing and eliminating cervical cancer, which the World Health Organization has committed to. They have a plan to commit to eradicate cervical cancer by 2030 because we have the tools to do it. We have an HPV vaccine. We can scale up screenings and we can provide treatment to every eligible woman who needs such treatment. It's very possible to eradicate cancer. And so her generation can grow up differently. And I think about my role in this, which is that I can help offer that to her, but also that she and my son and my husband don't have to grow up without their mother and their wife in the home, you know, and an incomplete family that was preventable in the first place. And that's been the reality for so many families through all of human history. And because we have the tools in modern medicine to stop it, and because we can speak our truth, and we can show up for care and we can ask for what we need and we can follow through on that care and prevent this. I see no other option. We have to do it. I love that. We also are a household that uses the real terms for vagina and vulva, but we do talk about penises and I will say, I'll share a funny story. Please, Um, yes. And I'll be curious if you've experienced this yet, but so we, we also have a lot of books that talk about, um, your body and all of this stuff. And, yes. um, Lucy, my oldest, so she's, she's five is probably, it was over the summer we're still in Chicago, but we were having a conversation with, with somebody and she was like, my vagina hurts. And they were like, excuse me. It was like, a yeah. and they were like, excuse me. And she was like, it hurts. <laughs> it, yeah they were like um she's like my vagina and so like what I share this because what I realized in that moment was how uncomfortable other people are Completely. with little kids using the correct terminology yes and even you know she was saying something to a friend um who, in, about a penis and they were like he's like my Peter and she was like your penis. And yeah. Right. And so it's just, I bring that up because 
You're right. It starts at such a young age. And again, like you, you call it whatever you want to call it in your family. I'm not going to, I'm not one to judge, nor will I judge you, but in our family, we've, we've made that decision. And I think it's been interesting to experience, um, how, how uncomfortable it makes other people. Um, absolutely. Which has been fascinating. Absolutely. We've experienced the same thing too. And I just smile because I'm like, I almost died last year. Like <laughs> we're calling it a vagina, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Like what is there to lose? Like, so we have everything to gain and nothing to lose. So we've been in that situation too. And I'm so proud of her and I'm so proud of, you know, it's a three syllable word. It's, you know, it's a lot coming out of a little mouth. And I'm like, yeah, I girlfriend. Love it. I absolutely. love it. Absolutely. Yes. Our youngest has like a bit of a speech delay. So her saying it, I'm like, oh my God, just keep saying it. Cause I like, yeah. love how it, <laughs> I love how it sounds. I'm so grateful you brought this topic up because I think, as we said earlier, there's just so much shame around all things women. And I appreciate your vulnerability in, in sharing that. And so for you, what did that journey look like as you overcame your shame? Really great question, Jess. You know, the shame was really difficult to see through. And I found the shame to be paralyzing. For me, it was this never-ending pit. And it would have kept going forever until it was actively disrupted. And there was so much that had to be done for me to survive. There was so much that I had to do. There was so much that my husband had to do for me. There was so much that we had to do for our family. And so the way that we started to get through it was just putting one foot in front of the next and taking each day one step at a time. But I will say this because I was so embarrassed and humiliated by the shame that I felt with this diagnosis. I was embarrassed that I had a cancer caused by an STI. I was upset with myself that my body hadn't been able to clear the infection on its own and it had turned into cancer and I was embarrassed and humiliated for all the other reasons we talked about, which was so absurd at the time, but it was so deafening in the face of all that I had to get through to survive. And so what I found along the way was my confidence had been completely shattered by having this diagnosis. You know, it came at a time when we're so vulnerable. I was pregnant, then I was postpartum. And, you know, you probably as a woman are never more fragile in these moments. And so I had to find ways that I could build trust, trust within myself and trust with the people around me. I leaned extensively on my husband. Uh, my husband, Matt, is a clinical psychotherapist, and he had introduced me to this idea in neurobiology uh, that neurons that wire together fire together. And so while it was extremely difficult for me to see any sort of positivity in the moment, he encouraged me to find some ways to understand that I would get through this and looking back this would be an experience that was transformative and I bit his head off many times as he <laughs> described this to me and I thought I can't even believe you're trying to get me to see the benefit in this in the moment but it really helped me sort of retrain my brain to understand that it wasn't this pit but something that I would endure and I would come through and ultimately there would be something of use and purpose that this would mean for me and it helped me create trust in myself and even deeper trust in our marriage that you know this is something we were doing together the next thing that I did was I thought really carefully about my care team and for a gynecological cancer 
postpartum where I would be undressing and naked and having gynecological exams all the time as part of my treatment and my care, it was really important that I was working with a team who understood me as a woman and as a person and as a mother and as my entire self and entire being. And I found that in my care team. The physicians who treated me are the best in the world and I'm so, I understand how unbelievably fortunate I am to have been under their care. And I could see a ferocity in their eyes when we met and we met a number of times in very different circumstances than oncology meetings typically take place. They were with me in my recovery room after Arthur was born. They were with me on the labor and delivery floor. They were with me in the room that we stayed in after Arthur's arrival, taking me through what their care plan would look like for me. And these were women who I could tell the way they met me, the way they greeted me, the way they designed for me, they had fought a lot of battles for women and they were prepared to fight with me. And having trust in that team, which was unparalleled versus any other physician team that I had met as I sought opinions on my care and what my care experience would look like, uh, I knew I could have trust in them and that helped me eventually build trust in myself to understand what they were doing was working and that, you know, ultimately I was getting better. And then, you know, the last thing that I'll say is I had sort of gone into this state of shock where I had come really quickly out of work into having Arthur and being a cancer patient all at once. And it was impossible for me to access grief safely. And so uh, at my husband's suggestion, I started working with incredible therapists who specialized in the exact sort of patient profile as specific as mine was. Uh, they were uh, folks who practiced in uh, postpartum, in cancer and crisis, and in trauma. And they helped me understand that you know this was something major and extreme that I was going through and that it was okay for me to access these emotions that were so difficult for me to to feel um, and when I when I could feel I started learning about what I was going through and what this diagnosis really meant and what it looked like for women like myself and women in much different positions here in America and around the world and once I started understanding how preventable this e is, how incredible the tools that modern medicine has created to eliminate this very disease, that grief turned into anger and urgency really, really quickly. And so I started drawing on these skills from my past life, you know, the woman I was before cancer and crisis and everything that we've gone through in the last 18 months. And I decided that as a woman in tech, with the experience that I've had, made me a really powerful person to start sharing this message that there's a lot that can be done to prevent this exact diagnosis from any woman after me who ends up with it. And so talking about it has stripped down the shame. It has reminded me of the woman I am and who I've become through this and all that came before me to get me here and who I want to be to find some purpose and meaning in this experience that it was in a sense worth it because it gives me the opportunity to help other women and to use my skill set to do exactly that, to take the shame away, to take the stigma away, to take the fear away and instead help more women into prevention, help more families stay together and whole and ideally be part of the global movement to eradicate this disease from the face of the planet.
Wow. Just wow. Thank you so much for sharing that and sharing your journey and unpacking what is such a heavy and meaty thing, right? Shame is all of those things. And yet, as you, as you said, as you start to share your story, you recognize that you can own your story and own your voice and, and share it in a way that feels genuine and authentic to you. So I so appreciate you sharing that with me. Thank you. Uh, well, Eve, thank you so much for this conversation. I could go on and on, but I will let you go back to your amazing family. Um, how thank can you. people continue to follow you on your journey? Yes. So I am speaking out through LinkedIn. And so you can look me up on LinkedIn. And then I'm also on Twitter at Eve McDavid. Awesome. Eve, thank you so much for this conversation. Jess, thank you so much for having me. It is such a joy and an honor to be here. Thank you again. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If something in the conversation resonated with you, please, please share it with a friend that you think needs to hear this conversation. Feel free to tag me on social media. Let me know how you're listening, where you're listening and what resonated. Tag me at this is my truth podcast, or feel free to shoot me a DM. And because we're a new podcast and this shit matters, I would love for you to leave me a rating and review. Tell me how you truly feel. This entire podcast is about vulnerability and authenticity. So let me know how you really feel and give me some feedback. I really appreciate it.